Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July 31st, 2017, and this is episode 2054 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday, that means it's a listener feedback show. Um, today we have quite a bit on the agenda. We have a question on what is called spot change. In regard to gold and silver and other things like that, what does that mean? And I'll talk. It's pretty simple, actually. Uh, I have a, a little little thing on what's called a tipping economy and how it might apply to maroads uh, out of Honduras. Uh, I have a question on cre- increasing fertility in raised beds, uh, dealing with a car that is a lemon, uh, a real lemon here. Uh, when drug addicts, drug addicts are treated like criminals, we all lose. I'm going to talk about a specific case where a young woman lost her life while in police custody and how the current drug epidemic is bringing out the worst, I feel, in everybody, including law enforcement. Uh, the plight of homelessness and what are some real solutions to the problem? I have a sincere question from somebody that says, hey, you know, I have mixed emotions when I see all these homeless people begging for money on the side of the road. Is there a solution to this? Um, and then a question on the SEC getting involved with ICOs and what that will mean. And I don't think it's as big a deal as some people think it is just yet anyway. Um, but the SEC came out with a, a statement on the fact that basically the Dow uh, was illegal. But they're not going to prosecute it because, well, they hadn't issued any guidance yet under it. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about what that means for the future of cryptocurrencies like Ethereum, etc. Uh, real quick, right up front, I put out a quick little article today, and um, I, I, for many of you, like as late as the show goes out, I hope you saw the article because it's it's going to get down to crunch time on being able to actually move Bitcoin anywhere. Um, but it looks like with this user-activated fork that's coming up tomorrow, uh, if you hold Bitcoin, you can also hold Bit. You, you you'll basically at the after this fork have Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash in the same amount. So in other words, you had five Bitcoins. Today, after the fork, you could have five Bitcoins and five Bitcoin Cash tokens uh, with the fork. And I talk about some places that you can uh, move your Bitcoin, where if you're holding it there, you'll be able to have both of them. Where if you're holding your Bitcoin and Coinbase, um, they say they're not going to support the fork. So uh, that's something I've talked about leading up till today, but I wanted to put one last little thing out and it went out on the blog today. Kind of a little additional side note there. Before we get into all your feedback, let's go ahead and uh, hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey, guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5 to 10% of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jmbullion.com to learn more. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was. The year This year in history is the year 34 AD. I have two segments, from one from David Verne and one from Southpaw Ben. Uh, from Southpaw Ben, I have Navius Sortius Marco's wife. 
That's a mouthful. In order to gain favor with Caligula, who is the clear successor to Tiberius, Navius turns a blind eye on his wife, Enna Thrasilla, having an affair with Caligula. This gained him great favor with Caligula. However, this won't last for long. My take by South Ben. Different historians have different opinions about the truth behind the affair. Some think that Navius simply ignored his wife having an affair. Others think he and Enya colluded together to have her pretend to love him to increase their political power. Still others fall everywhere in between on this issue. Uh, again, more of the soap opera that is early Rome. Uh, built to last, contributed by David Verne. Construction of the Nimes Aqueduct begins this year. Nimes is a city of 60,000 in southern Gaul, modern France. It is a difficult position to build an aqueduct for. A rough terrain and deep valleys force Roman engineers to build a large loop. It will stretch 31 miles. The water source is only 56 feet higher than the catchment basin in the city, but this was enough to provide a steady flow of water. A portion of the aqueduct still stands today. The Pont de Garde, it's a bridge over the Gaudon River, um, and is 902 feet long. It used to be 1,160 feet and 160 feet high. It is constructed of 50,400 tons of limestone from a local quarry, and some individual blocks weigh up to six tons. The blocks were individually cut at the quarry to fit without mortar using only friction. The aqueduct will take 15 years to complete will provide an estimated 10.5 million gallons of water a day. My take by David Verne. Aqueducts ran completely on gravity, and surveyors had to be extremely precise in their measurements to ensure that there was enough gradient for the water to flow. The aqueduct channels were lined with concrete covered with slab stones. Uh, when it reached the city, it went into a catchment basin where pipes would deliver water to fountains, baths, and private homes. Some insula, known as apartment buildings, provided running water to their tenants on lower floors, Pipes were preferably ceramic. The Romans knew about the health effects of lead. And if lead pipes were used, the minerals in the water would eventually coat the pipes, preventing too much lead poisoning. So I guess if the Romans knew about lead, we maybe should not have used uh, lead pipe in early uh, American. I mean, we used uh, lead pipes in houses up to about 1920s, if I remember right. And then there were certain other things that removed uh, other components of lead from plumbing all the way up into the 80s. But the Romans do this. I think it's amazing to me when I look back at things like the Colosseum, the aqueducts, and things like that, the construction that was done at this time. I mean, you have to think about this. You don't have an excavator. You don't even have a freaking bobcat, right? And you're going to cut a stone, a six-ton stone, perfectly square, and you're going to move it you know, several miles, hoist it into the air, up onto, uh, sit on top of another block, and put it in place, and you're going to attach it to the other rocks with nothing. You just put it all in place and let it stack, like stacking blocks like when you're a kid. And you're going to make an aqueduct that is 15 mi- or 31 miles long and moves, uh, how much water did we say there was? It was, uh, I guess he didn't say, but it was a, a lot of water, right? Um, 10.5 million gallons of water a day is what it was. 10.5 million gallons of water a day. 31 miles in the catch basins to provide water for a city of 60,000 people. And you're going to do that without a single piece of equipment that we think of for construction today. It's absolutely unbelievable what people were able to do at the time.
And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring the show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount, just email me at jack at the survivalpodcast.com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, with that, let's get into your feedback. This first one's actually pretty simple. Uh, this comes from Mike. Mike says, what does the term spot change mean? Details, I was curious about the current price of gold. So I Googled it and it showed me the spot price. I understand that. What I didn't understand was the spot change. I tried looking up the term and could not figure out exactly what it meant. Please enlighten me, Mike. I guess it could be confusing because it's a term that gets used like on charts and stuff sometimes, or actually more like live feeds at times, but yet it, it, it really isn't defined anywhere that I know of. Like I've never seen like, you know, on my, um, you know, I give my financial term of the day, uh, email and it never, never spot change is not something I've ever seen show up there. It's just the change in spot price over the last 24 hours. So that, that's, that's all that it means. So if you see the, the spot change is a dollar and it's red, it went down a dollar over the last 24 hours, the spot price itself. And the spot price is, is say, so the spot change is a dollar with green and an arrow up. It means that the price of gold over the last uh, 24-hour period went up a, a dollar on the spot. I, I do want to cover kind of what spot price means and how this affects, you know, buying silver, buying gold, for those that may not know. Because I hear from people a lot of times that think, I'm getting ripped off because... You know, the spot price is there, and, and somebody's going to buy from them, but they're buying slightly under spot, or they're selling, and they're selling their silver over spot. Well, this is how people in the precious metal business make money. Um, the spot price is, is the price that dealers are paying when you're buying very large amounts of, of, of the metal. I mean, the best way to think of spot prices is, like, immediate liquidity. Um if if a large amount of silver or gold needed to be immediately transferred into cash, what price could be expected for it? And, and that means that when you go to you know your local coin shop or you go to Jam Bullion or go to any other online retailer and you want to buy five ounces of silver, you're going to pay more than that because that's how they make their money. And it's actually a very risky business. And... I think a lot of people get very short-sighted about things like spot price and whatever in precious metals because you know they're worried about fifty cents or a dollar or two dollars on an ounce of gold or silver, you know, and that's 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 so inconsequential to what you're buying that commodity for, and it, it, you have to think about it from the standpoint of let's say I am Jack's Silver Shop, and you want to sell your silver to me, and let's say the spot price is fifteen bucks. Let's say I pay you 15 bucks for that silver. I pay you spot. And let's say I sell at 15 bucks because that's what everybody wants. Well, how do I make any money? How do I make any money? And the answer is I can't make any money that way. The only way I can make money that way is if I always buy 
lower than I sell. In fact, I, you know, I buy at 15, I just put all that $15 silver in a stack. And that's $15 silver. And I just wait till the spot price goes up to, let's say, $18 before I'm willing to sell that silver. Obviously, I can't run a gold and silver exchange that way. I can't run a, a, a metal shop that way. It just doesn't work. So what I do is I say, well, if spot's 15, maybe I'm going to pay 14 and I'm selling at 16. These aren't hard numbers, but this is just an example. So I'm going to make a couple bucks an ounce. But what happens to me if, you know, today I buy a whole bunch of silver at 14 bucks and tomorrow silver goes to 13.50. See, you're 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 operating on these razor thin margins to begin with. And then on top of that, you have a fluctuation in the commodity. And in many ways I look at this and I don't understand sometimes how these people stay in business. They have to do sufficient volume to eat, to average out over the total that they're making that spread consistently. Because when you think about it, if they're sitting on, let's say a, 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 a local exchange or shop is sitting on 100,000 ounces of gold and silver, mixed, right? And you have a 30% drop in the market. I mean, these are about millions of dollars gone. And at that point, they're holding that inventory... And think about it like yourself. Let's say that you went out and bought $10,000 worth of silver, and, and then the next day it became worth $7,000. Do you want to sell it? But yet if you're in that business on some levels, you have to. So it's a, it's a tough market, and I think that when we start really nitpicking a, a, a provider over, you know, well, this is a quarter higher than, I mean, do you want to invest in silver and gold or not? If you want to be able to buy and sell and trade silver and gold um, at you know the set price and have you know a very small fee and a brokerage fee, then ETFs are the way that you do that. Uh, if you want to move and sell and trade a commodity, there has to be something in it for the person that's taking the risk and doing the work. And that's what gold and silver shops do for us. Uh, let's take another one. But once again, before we do the The spot change is simply how much that commodity has moved on its spot price over the last 24-hour period. This next one comes from Southpaw Ben of the uh, famous TSP Wiki. Southpaw Ben says to us, Well, in Honduras last week, I saw an example of the tipping economy in practice through the filling of potholes. I spent the last week in Honduras on a mission trip, hence the lack of contributions to the history segment. Uh, and like many South American countries, while far away from major tourist areas or cities, the roads are terrible. Some are dirt, but many are paved and pockmarked with potholes. According to the man in charge of the mission organization we are working with, multiple families in the area will make their living by filling potholes with dirt from the side of the road, and then drivers will tip them according to how many potholes they've actually filled, etc. While some abuse, abuse this kindness and will fill in like three potholes and just stand around flagging down cars for tips, others will fill in a significant uh, sections of the road, While not as permanent as an asphalt patch, this goes to show how creative people can solve Moroads issue without government, as well as an example of how people can and do currently live off of a tipping economy. Thanks for all you do, Southpaw Ben. Um, the, one of the main reasons I played this is not to beat up on status with the whole Moroads objections, because certainly I want Moroads to uh, be a little bit better than uh, dirt-filled potholes, but... There's some pretty big potholes out there that I kind of wish somebody around here would be enterprising enough to fill in with dirt. Uh, of course, our government would probably fine you for doing this. 
No, the real reason I, I, I played the, or I uh, covered this one on today's show is because it takes me back to Panama circa 1991 when I was stationed in Panama. Um, when we left the, the backside of Fort Kobe, it went out to a place called Veracruz Beach, which was a public beach that soldiers and locals both hung out on. And there was a road that ran along Veracruz Beach and along the coastline all the way out to what's known as the Bridge of Americas. And uh, that road was you know, a back road, and it was not well-maintained. Apparently, before the Panama Canal Treaty with Jimmy Carter, the United States government maintained that road, and it was actually a great road. But after that treaty, it was like, well, it's not ours anymore, so here you go, Panama, take care of it. And of course, Panama didn't take care of it. And we used to have to drive that road often to get over to Fort Clayton on the other side of the canal going across the Bridge of Americas. And we would be driving things like Hemets, Deuce and a Halves, and Five Tons. These vehicles are certainly able to handle bumps, but they're not comfortable, right, when you hit big giant potholes with a, you know, a loaded five ton or a five ton wrecker towing a deuce and a half. It's not nice. And there was this, it was one guy. He had a wheelbarrow. And you would see him on that road every single day. And he just took his wheelbarrow and his shovel and he filled his holes. And he went as far as he could that day. And he kept going every day, and I'm sure he had somebody pick him up or drop him off. They had a pretty good bus system there. And this was about, I think, 11 miles of road, if I remember right. It might have been nine. It's one of those two. It's, it's significant. And he would just keep going until he got to the end. And, of course, by then, since he was filling it in with dirt and on the beach, you're really talking about sand, you know, especially in the rainy season, the first holes had already started to wash out again. And he'd just start over. And he would be on that road somewhere along it every day filling those holes in. And he was not a guy that filled those holes in, like filled like three holes in and slid around. But when you were driving around, you'd see this guy humping it. And he took his job pretty seriously. It was interesting that in a country that was as poor as Panama, he was the only person I ever saw do that. Now, I don't know if he had some strong arm thing going on, like stay off my road, this is my road, I, this is my gig or something. But, you know, he did that every day. And I'm going to tell you, more than once, I stopped and gave the guy a couple bucks. Because he made my life better. Now, do I think this is a solution to my roads? Like, how would we have roads without the state? No, but I think it's an indicator that, that as long as people want roads, we'll have roads. And that we might be able to have better roads if we opened up the opportunity for people to contribute. Now, I'm also not naive. I understand that we can't have you know, Jimmy Joe Jim Bob putting overpasses in with no nobody looking over Jimmy Joe Jim Bob's shoulder to make sure it's not going to collapse. But I think things like potholes, etc., um, could be largely fixed. And I'll tell you a little case of anarchism in action. Uh, there was one time, and I won't say specifically when because the statute of limitations are probably not up, but there was one time that in an area where I lived there was a big hole. That hole came after tremendous rain events, And it was right at a corner where when you were turning, when you were coming off a main road, making a left turn, or actually a right turn onto that road, you could go into there. And I mean, it would tear the bottom of a, a small car off, is as bad as it was. And because it had continued to rain, what had happened is that that hole was full of water. So you couldn't see that it was a hole. It just looked like a puddle. 
And me and a couple other guys realized this was going to be a problem. So we got a whole bunch of sacks of sackcrete. We threw it in the hole, mixed it up, let it harden. It wasn't a perfect fix, and we ended up that we didn't have enough sackcrete to all the way fill the hole, but it prevented people from getting their vehicle torn apart. And, you know, six, eight months later, the city came and put some uh, blacktop over it, filled it the rest of the way in properly, but we took that intermittent action. We did it about 2 o'clock in the morning because we figured we could get arrested for it, but we also figured something needed to be done. And I just wonder how many places like that, like when we looked at it and we realized, hey, you know, it could use a couple more bags of sacrete. How many places like that people would just fix if they were able to, if they had the ability to without facing reprisal? And it also, the other reason I want to play this is, it's an example of someone finding a need and filling it and then being recognized for that need and then compensated for it. And you wonder how many people say they can't get a, they can't find a way in the world today, they can't get a job, they can't this, they can't that. If they were as innovative as a poor guy with a shovel and a wheelbarrow in Panama or Honduras, if they had that much motivation, right, and that much innovation, could they come up with something? And again, no, it probably wouldn't be filling holes in on a road because the police would probably come arrest you for that, as insane as that sounds. They'd say it's creating a, a public danger or something like that. But the, the whole issue there wasn't filling potholes. It was finding a need and addressing the need in a way that was evident to others that it was valuable. And, and I, I just think that in America today, there, if you say, well, well, that'll work there, but it won't work here, you might be right. But if you make that your objection, what you're saying is that people have a better opportunity to improve their lives and earn a decent wage in Honduras than they do in America. And... Friends, if you want to make that claim to me, that claim is retarded. And I have, I've explained my use of the word retarded before, and, and there could not be a better example of where that makes sense to use that word. That is a retarded statement that, that you actually are better off in Honduras than the United States. I mean, it's, it's, it's retarded on its face. And I, I think, you know, we're going to talk about some problems today. And I don't know what the answer to those problems are, and I don't know what the opportunity to those problems are. I do know this, wherever there is a problem, there is an opportunity. That, that, in, in fact, that is literally the entire point of an economy, is to solve problems. If you think about it, every single thing that makes money solves a problem. That problem could be a big problem, or it could be a relatively small problem, like my back itches and I need a way to reach the spot I can't reach. And you buy a back scratcher. Right? Or it could be like, I just wish my computer was faster, and then you can buy a faster processor. Like those aren't those aren't you know world you know hampering problems like somebody needs to eat today. But but in the end, it always comes down to that. When, when even when you buy a product that is like purely for entertainment, well, the problem is boredom. Well, the problem is you don't have the things in your life that you want. Now sometimes those things are plastic fake crap. Um, and slick marketing, but in the end, there's a problem, and the person at least believes that the purchase will solve the problem. So every job, every every bit of gainful employment, every valid company, every valid solution, um, in any way, shape, or means, stems from a problem. If we had no problems at all, nobody would have anything to do. 
So I, I think that like the real lesson there is can you identify a problem that you can address? Because I think so many entrepreneurs try to figure out, well, what will people buy? Rather than what is the problem and therefore how can I be a solution to that problem in a way that will make me you know, financially viable at the same time. Um, let's take another one. Uh, this one comes from Emily. Emily says, question for Jack. How can you increase fertility in a raised bed? Context, we built two by, four by 16 square foot raised beds last winter. And except that I planted too late, everything's doing great. The soil's compacted, though. In a traditional garden, I would add lots of compost and organic material, but I can't do that to the raised beds or they'll overflow. I was thinking I could use compost tea, mycorrhizal fungi, and worms. Do you have any other ideas? Also on worms, on Amazon CA can get expensive. Could I get worms from bait and tackle shop, or are the worms from forest good enough? Uh, we'll start with worms. Worms are worms, okay? And there are different species of worms. So if you get, like, a nightcrawler, that's a totally different worm than a compost worm. A nightcrawler, uh, red worms, etc., um, will live in soil. Compost worms live in compost. So for your garden, you want worms. And the reality is if you increase the fertility of your soil, uh, worms will show up, especially in Canada, where we get Canadian nightcrawlers from, right? So I don't even know that you really need to worry about it, but... Would it hurt anything to run down to your local bait store and buy a few dozen uh, containers of nightcrawlers and put them into your garden? Not at all. Except if you have compacted soil, it's not very worm-friendly. Now, how are we going to address this? Okay, so here's my issue. Everything's doing wonderfully. I'm not that concerned about fertility. Then What I'm concerned about is you have compacted soil. What's the solution to compacted soil? Compost and mulch. Why don't you want to do it? Because it will cause the bed to overflow. I'd like to know what you filled the bed with. I mean, that's that's something that I would I would find interesting then. Because what is compacted since you constructed these beds? Were they filled with native soil? Uh, were they filled with compost? Were they filled with some kind of a soil mix? Because uh, it really shouldn't be composted if you're cultivating, you know, your garden vegetables and things like that in there. I would also say this though. It is totally worth removing an inch of soil to add an inch of mulch. It's totally worth doing. Um, mulch is everything in a garden. It is To me, it is the most important thing you can do for a garden. And I'll also tell you the other thing is, you can throw in a couple inches of mulch on top of a raised bed that's higher than the edge of the raised bed. It'll usually stay right there, especially wood mulch. As far as increasing the fertility as a whole and improving the soil as a whole, yes, mycorrhizal fungi will actually be very, very good. Compost tea would be excellent. Those are both two great amendments. Um, good soakings of um, things that are good organic fertilizers. Garret juice uh, would be a great uh, root soak. Um, liquid seaweed would be another great uh, root soak. Um Those are, those are all good things that you can do to improve the soil. But to me, you, you really need to work out getting some mulch on top of the beds. Now, if you've got lots of stuff growing right now and it's all doing really good, you probably don't need to be messing it up. But you can probably still just sprinkle wood mulch on there, and that will help right away to improve the soil. Another thing that I would look at adding to your raised beds is a, before you did that, a coating like a sprinkled coating of horticultural molasses, dry molasses, or a drenching of a liquid molasses product to improve 
the environment for the microorganisms in there as well. Those are both fantastic, as would be any good quality, um, either liquid or even solid organic fertilizer. Dr. Earth uh, Liquid Gold or Dr. Earth 444 Solid, you know, uh, uh, solid fertilizer. Both of those are two of my favorites. Those are all ways you can definitely improve the, the soil biology there. And there's probably not a ton that you really need to do. If, if everything looks good, things are pretty going pretty well. But when you start telling me you're getting compaction, I start to worry about long-term problems. And what you usually end up with with a heavily compacted bed at the end of a season is a big weed problem in the spring coming out of it. So what I would personally do, if you if you see any need of any fertility aids, go ahead and do that. Pitching some worms in there, there's certainly nothing wrong with that. Uh, mycorrhizal fungi is actually best done when planting. Uh, I have a, a, a product I recommend I'll put in the show notes for you guys uh, today for mycorrhizal fungi that I think is a fantastic product for this. But you can sprinkle it on, but it generally doesn't work as well. Is getting it like when you plant a new plant, a little sprinkle right in the hole. Or if you're doing a furrow and you're doing like, let's say, beans, so you cut your furrow and you do a little sprinkle of this fungi all the way down that furrow. Or at the beginning of a season, you give it a good broadcast and, and, and give it the top. I'm not a big person on turning soil really heavily, but turning that top couple inches of soil and kind of mixing that in, again, with your amendments like dry molasses, really will do a lot for you. I've had incredible results uh, with wicking beds this year in my aviary that were inoculated with mycorrhizal fungi. It's pretty amazing, the uh, the results from it. it the, just some of the healthiest plants I've ever seen in my life. And uh, so, so I'm a big believer in that. But I would kind of, like, just do whatever you need to do through this season because you don't want to tear up plants to improve soil when the plants are healthy. But as you, as you clean things up at the end of this year, I would give your beds a big, thick, heavy mulch. And I might even, you know, if you're, I'm figuring in your climate, you're probably going to have at least several months that are going to be dormant. So I'd give a big, heavy wood mulch on top of it. Right before I did that, I'd give it a good, uh, a good blasting of liquid molasses. And then I'd probably go ahead and put a tarp over the mulch. Because that's going to hold it in place, and that's going to help keep the, it warm there longer, and it's going to warm up faster for you in the spring. And again, I wouldn't worry too much about you know a little bit of it falling out or what have you. And then over the, the winter, you're going to have a lot of breakdown. If you have those warm days intermixed with all your cold days and your humidity, you're going to have a lot of breakdown, and you're going to have incredible soil in the spring. It'll be far from compacted if you do that. And if it's necessary to scrape off an inch or two to do that, Then I would. I might even go so far as to scrape off two inches and lay down an inch of compost and maybe even then two inches of wood mulch. Because, again, you can stack a little bit higher than the actual edges of a raised bed with wood mulch. I did it all the time when I used to run raised beds. Uh, so hopefully that helps you. Let's take another one. This next one's kind of complicated. This comes from Matt in uh, Montana. And Matt says, what do you do when you owe more on a car than it's worth? My wife bought a 2014 Ford Focus brand new. There's something shitty with the transmission or clutch that causes it to fail. We've taken to the shop many times to resolve this issue, but it keeps putting the same they keep putting the same parts on it and it will fail again. We even had a salesman tell us off the record, park it in a bad spot of town with the keys in it since there's nothing they can do for us. Does it really make sense to keep making payments on a car that isn't worth what we owe? She likes the car, but we would eventually like to get something they can handle the roads better here in Montana like a Subaru. 
Do we trade the car in for the Subaru now and take the hit, keep making payments until we're ready to upgrade vehicles, or do we park the car in a bad part of town? Thanks for all you do. Uh, greatly appreciated, Matt. Well, first of all, it sounds to me like you have a lemon. And um, it may be that you waited too long to act here, but Montana has a lemon law. And it's it's actually called the New Motor Vehicle Warranty Act. It helps consumers that have bought a new vehicle that qualifies as a lemon. When repeated attempts at repair have been unsuccessful, the law may require manufacturers to replace or repair the defective vehicle. So, you know, basically, if they can't fix it, then they just need a new car, is what the law says in Montana. However, um, it says the vehicle has to be less than two years old and have less than 18,000 miles on it for that to, to happen. Um, so, if this has been an ongoing problem since you bought it, it's likely too late since it's 2014, and you have 18 months since you bought it new. You know, at the outside, maybe she bought it early 2015. I don't know, man. If you're within that 18-month window, I would be coming down hard on this um, with your dealer. If it's outside of the 18-month window, it's enough of a problem in the first place to get them to step up and do this, you know, um, that they probably won't, and they'll probably block it. If you've had the problem multiple times and it went back during that 18-month window, then you know the right thing for them to do would be to make this right, as they should have, and 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 you should have known your the thing is you should have known your options and you didn't. So I'm assuming that you're not going to be able to get this handled under Montana's Lemon Law, but I think that anybody when you buy a new vehicle and you have this kind of recurring problem, and you have somebody saying, "Hey, just park it, get rid of it, because we can't do anything." Hey, well that's not what you're supposed to sell me. Okay, so that that that's a problem there. I don't know if this is a problem that's that's highly known with Ford Focuses. I could kick it over to Charles, but odds are that he's not going to be able to diagnose what's wrong, what's causing this problem uh, from across the interwebs anyway. I might kick it over to him anyway. The financial aspects of this are, number one, if you had no problems with this car at all, if you just didn't want it anymore, but it worked fine and there weren't any, wasn't anything wrong with it, um, Right now, you would owe more than it's worth. That's how financing vehicles works. And this is one of the big reasons I have turned a lot. If you're going to have a new vehicle and you're going to be trading in it often, high-value resell vehicles and lease. Because I'll bet you that I'm probably driving a 4Runner, a fully loaded 4Runner, for about the same money or less. I'm probably paying less to drive my 4Runner on a three-year lease than you are on that Focus. That doesn't help you in this situation, but it's something to think about when you look at going into something like a Subaru, which generally is a fairly high resale value vehicle. At least consider that as your options when you're making this trade-in. So the, the, the reason that you have an upside-down loan is because you're early in the term of the loan. You're only about two years into it maybe three years into it. If you're three years into it, you're starting to get past that break-even point. So I guess my question would be, well, can you live with it for a little while longer? If you can live with it for a little while longer, you can feel better about you know, when you trade this thing in, getting out without putting out any extra money. But here's the reality. You, it, unless it benefits you, to only make the payments instead of coming up with the difference in some way, it's pretty much the same. 
In other words, if you don't have the money or spending that large of a sum of money at one time is going to put you in a bad situation, then you bite the bullet and you keep making the payments. Because you're paying down the vehicle at a slower rate than if you traded it in and bought down the difference in cash in one bite. Because each payment you make, a portion is going for interest and a portion is going toward principal. So if you hold the vehicle for another year, for example, and let's say you have a, a $400 payment on the vehicle, that's another $4,800 that you're going to come out of pocket. At the same time, that vehicle's value is declining. Now, when I went to trade this vehicle in with a Subaru dealership, I wouldn't say anything about this problem. You got it fixed, it's working, let their mechanics look at it, they're probably going to give it a clean bill of health, and it becomes some, when you sell a vehicle, it becomes somebody else's problem. Now, selling this to a, a private party or something and hiding that, I think would be kind of a nasty thing to do, but trading it in on a new vehicle. <clears throat> they're big boys, they know how to do their thing, and maybe they'll actually fix it, or whoever they wholesale it off to will actually fix it. All right? But financially, you probably are actually going to be out less money in the total biting the bullet and making the trade now. The, the, the offset is, hey, if you keep making payments on it, you have that smaller outflow monthly, and if you're able to save money during that period, maybe it's better for you personally, financially. Um, <clears throat> as far as parking the car in a bad part of town, let somebody steal it so you can claim the insurance on it. It's probably not a good idea. With your luck, they'll... They'll find the person that did it. They'll say the keys were in it, and you know you'll end up prosecuted for freaking attempted insurance fraud or something like that. Um, I'll tell you this: the dealership that you bought this vehicle from, the dealership that told you that, you should not only never do business with them ever again, but you should tell everybody you know and three of their friends to never do business with this dealership again. And before I gave up on this. I would go in and I would I would find the highest level, if, if possible, the owner of that dealership and say, I need to sit down with you for 15 minutes and discuss this and explain that under Montana's Lemon Law, which, yes, now we've expired. I didn't know I had this option. I'm sure you did or your people did. This vehicle should not be my problem right now. This vehicle should not be my problem right now. This vehicle should have been replaced as a chronic problem that you were unable to correct with multiple failures as a new vehicle. And it's the problem should have been between you, your dealership, and Ford Motor Company. It should not have been my problem. And it would be great if you could make this right. Because if you don't, if you don't, then I am going to make sure that all of my friends, all of their mothers, and two friends, and several more know that you did not make this right, that you sold me a bad vehicle that you were unable to fix, and you didn't make it right. And I promise you, whatever it would cost you to fix this, I promise you it will cost you more in the long run. And they may not believe you, but then make good on that threat. Make good on that threat. I'd stand out in front of the damn dealership with a sign. Don't buy a car here. They don't fix their lemons. I'm serious, right? I mean, like that is that is not something that should happen. That dealer knew what they were doing. <clears throat> they knew that problem was chronic. They knew that it was their obligation to fix it, but they knew you didn't know that. 
And by fix it, I mean if you've made repeated attempts to fix something that continues to break in the same vehicle, then, then a, a, under new car laws, you are obligated to replace the vehicle. And I looked up Montana's law. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. It's very clear that that's what the law says. So I might have that conversation, but I'm going to bet they're going to be hard-nosed about it. They're not going to do it. I mean, you got to decide, like, how far do you want to take it? But I would. I would make sure that it went out on your social media. I would tell every friend and friend and friend you can find. I would talk to everybody that you met that's local and say, man, I wouldn't do business with this Ford dealership because, and tell them what happened. Because this is crap. This is crap. Again, this should not be your problem, Matt. This should be a problem between that dealership and Ford Motor Corporation. And there are mechanisms for dealers to deal with that kind of a problem with their manufacturer. I looked up the 2014 Ford Focus, and I cannot find that this is a known chronic thing that happens all the time to all of them. So this is something that's wrong with that vehicle. And just throwing a new part in there obviously doesn't work. Now, there may be some part that it's interacting with that can be causing the failure. There should, could be some kind of a computer malfunction. Um, a lot of these, uh, a lot of these, these cars today, um, that, so you say clutch, so it's probably a manual is what I'm thinking here. Even though there are a, a manual shift transmission, there's a lot of computer operation and pressures on the clutch and things like that. And there could be something wrong with the computer itself that's applying too much, too little pressure, something like that. Because it's not just a straight mechanical operation like the olden days, right? That's why they seem to shift so much smoother and, and what have you. Um, but something's, something's not right, and they should fix it. If they're not going to, you know, I personally would go ahead and, and, and get the trade taken care of if you have the cash reserves to do it. Because in the end, you're going to come out financially ahead. Because you're going to get the value of the vehicle today in the trade. A year or two from now, that vehicle's value, is going to, with mileage as well, is going to go down as, the, as your balance due goes down. That's, that's part of the, the way things work there. And the other problem is it's just not a high resale value vehicle. Ford Focuses are, to me, they're overpriced to begin with, and they don't hold their value for shit. Um, you couldn't, it's nothing to do with this individual problem. You couldn't convince me to spend my money on a Ford Focus. I'm sorry. I know I've pissed off some Ford Focus owners, but that's the way I feel. And, man, this dealership sure didn't help my opinion of them. Let's take another one. So next up, what I've titled this is When Drug Addicts Are Treated Like Criminals, We All Lose. And this is a story that's actually a few years old. I guess it started making its way around um, the Internet again uh, for some reason. This, this, this article that was sent to me originally was written in 2015. The title of the article is 18-Year-Old Girl Dies in Jail After Police Cue Her of Faking a Medical Emergency. So... What what happened is this, and, and I'll give you the short version. You can read the article if you want. You can find more on this if you want to, just by googling her name. It's uh, Victoria Air, uh, V I C T O R I V I C T O R I A H E R R uh, H E R R is the last name. Also known as Tori Air. She died in a Lebanon County Correctional Facility um, after police hesitated to provide her with medical care for several days. Air was addicted to heroin and began to go into withdrawal when she was taken into custody. This situation could be potentially deadly if not handled with care. Sadly the, sadly, the correction officers at the jail accused her of faking and refused to get her medical care until it was too late. Uh, our family did sue 
I don't know what came of the lawsuit. I haven't been able to find out if that's still pending or if they were successful or unsuccessful in suing the state, which is always a difficult thing to do. Um, the state police investigated it, which is standard procedure, whenever an inmate dies in, in custody, and said that, well, don't worry about it because all of uh, her constitutional rights were protected and all procedures and protocols were followed properly. Um, so you basically have the state investigating itself and saying the state's okay to do what it did. Okay. We'll put that aside. Let's say all the procedures and protocols were properly followed. Their, their statement's absolutely true. Okay, then the procedures and the protocols are the trouble, the, the problem. Are they not? You have somebody addicted to heroin, and they're not put under medical care during withdrawal. There's a damn good chance they're going to die. So what may you ask was this girl's huge crime that had her in our prison system in the first place and denied medical care? She was accused of selling heroin. Now, or attempting to sell heroin, I guess. Now, there's a couple things we have to look at here. Number one, they will charge you with an intent to distribute simply on a quantity. If you have a certain amount on you, they, they will say you intended to sell. Um, if a person is a heroin addict and she has fellow addicts and her friend says, well, get me some too, okay, and she gets some money from her friend and goes and buys heroin for both of them, They will also call that consider that trafficking heroin. All right. So, you know, whether or not this was even truly dealing in the way that we think of it is is debatable. Okay, this girl was 18 year old anorexic, which I'm sure made it more likely that she would die from these complications. But again, that makes it more necessary that you provide proper medical oversight of this person if you have them in custody. But this this girl is not a freaking heroin kingpin. Okay. This is not the girl that was a connection. This was an addict who probably would get some extra heroin and sell it to afford her next batch of heroin. This is not your typical dealer that you think of. Okay, This isn't the person with the muddled voice and the hood over their head on the Drugs, Inc. TV show. This isn't an 18-year-old girl that's an addict. And she's dead. And she didn't have to be. Because the state wanted to put her in prison for a crime that had no victim. You can't show me any victim here other than her. And this is the problem. Even when there's minor crimes associated with it, like dealing, which, I, again, I don't see that as a, as long as you dealt the thing that they paid you for, I don't see a victim there. right? The victim is the addict themselves, sure, but so you, you got an addict. You, you understand when a person is addicted to heroin, they will do things that they otherwise would not do just to get more heroin because they feel that bad without it. And the problem we have in this country, specifically with heroin, is we are treating drug addicts as though they are criminals instead of sick people. These people on heroin in our country are sick and they need help. And we are not helping by throwing them into a prison population where they're treated like freaking animals. And they are left to die because they dehydrate. I mean, that's the, I don't know if you know that or not, but the primary way that people die from complications from heroin withdrawal is through dehydration. They begin to have massive amounts of diarrhea. They can't get enough fluids into themselves. You know, and it, you, you, you know, 
they don't know what's going on, so they might not even know what they really need to be doing to look after themselves. Because their solution has always been more heroin. If we take somebody into custody that says, yes, I'm a heroin addict, they should go straight to an infirmary until they get through with withdrawals. Well, there'd be so many of them. Maybe you should arrest less of them than I don't, I don't know. Right? Maybe unless you can show me their victim, they don't need to be in prison. They don't need to be in jail. Because I want to ask you, who wins? Who wins when we treat people with a drug addiction as criminals? You can say whether it should be or not. That's fine. Who wins? How do you? How is your life better because somebody who was using drugs is thrown in jail? How is your child's life better? If this happens to one of your kids, do you want them treated this way? Or do you want them given help? It won't happen to my kids. I'm sure this lady's, this lady's parents would have said that when she was 10 too. Oh, our little girl never. And right now, heroin is a cancer in our country. It is a complete and total cancer. And it has largely been created by the big drug manufacturers. I know a lot of people don't really want the truth on this, but this is the truth. In the 1980s, the big drug companies funded and then you know publicized two major studies on opiate-based medications that came to the conclusion of if you really have pain and you're treated with opiates for that pain, you will not become addicted to opiates. Now, this is this is... Another time for the use of the word. This is a retarded assertion, okay? This is completely idiotic. That you can give somebody a highly addictive substance, but if they're in pain and it only alleviates their pain, then they won't become addicted to it. And, of course, this is discredited at this point. And, of course, the pharmaceutical companies are like, whoopsie, we just followed the science. Remember, it's settled science, science, right? There is no such thing as settled science. And we don't buy into scientific studies that are paid for by the people that benefit from the results. So these drug companies made, honest to God, over 30 years, trillions of dollars on their, on their pain medications. And many people became addicted One of the most famous people to become addicted to this type of pain medication was Rush Limbaugh. And it's not because he was a pill popper to get high. It's because the guy legitimately had pain. He took it, and he needed more. And unlike a lot of people, he had an unlimited supply of money, and he could keep getting more and more and more. Because what happens with these drugs is, even if they're helping your pain, as you develop an addiction, you're now taking the drug to not feel like crap, not to get rid of the pain. Okay? By not taking the drug, you feel like shit. And it's a lot like smokers. Smokers, you, you guys really don't enjoy smoking. You become addicted to nicotine in the form of burnt tobacco. And then if you don't have cigarettes, you feel like shit. And what you think is making yourself feel good is simply making yourself not feel bad. Well, with, with something like an opiate, it's the same but a hell of a lot worse. And so what happened is millions of people were prescribed these medications and then no longer could afford them or they were, could no longer get prescriptions for them and they felt like absolute shit and the heroin market exploded right around the same time 
And those people went to heroin because it was cheap and easy to get. And, and let me tell you what part of America is being destroyed by heroin. The backbone of America. The small towns. The small and mid-sized towns that, that 30 years ago had their problems, but it wasn't major drug problems. Towns like I grew up in, in Pottsville, Pennsylvania. When I was in high school in Pottsville, Pennsylvania, you could, if you worked really hard at it, get meth. But most of the people that were on meth were like auto body workers and stuff that were like, work really hard so I could make more money, so I could buy more speed, so I could work really hard, so I could, like that kind of tweaker guy, right? Like, kids didn't do speed. They just didn't, like in school. Kids drank beer and they smoked pot. That's what they did. And if you would have went to a group of like kind of rougher kids, right, kind of dope heads, and said, hey man, you want some dope? They'd be like, yeah. You want some heroin? Oh, dude, no, no, no. Okay, so I leave in 1989, I leave Pottsville, 89-90, and about six, seven years later, I'm talking to my father, and he tells me that my best friend from high school's girlfriend is dead of a heroin overdose. That she died of a heroin overdose, and they had actually started to brand the local heroin And they had these little bags with a skull and crossbones on it, and it said lethal injection on it. That was a six, seven-year period that it went from you couldn't get heroin in Pottsville. And nobody would have took it. The kids are dying from it, and they have a novelty brand called lethal injection. And from talking to people now, it's everywhere. Like, you can't not find it. And how are we going to fix this? If you think locking up addicts and dealers is going to fix it, we've been doing that for the 30 years that it's become the problem. And it's worse now than ever. So I ask you again, who benefits when we lock up drug users? The answer is one that many of you don't want to give, but you know in your heart what it is. Nobody wins. Nobody wins when we put somebody in prison or jail for using drugs or for selling small amounts of it. Now, I'm for decriminalization of everything. And I think that would actually make fixing the problem a lot easier. Because all the resources we use to lock people up for using drugs could be used to help people that are using drugs not use drugs. I know it sounds cr it's crazy sounding, but like actually getting someone off drugs... It's something that doesn't require putting them in a cage. It requires put, putting them into, yes, a custodial relationship. But it requires medical treatment and treating the underlying reason that makes this person a drug addict in the first place. And some of you say, well, I've known addicts that have been in and out of rehab 18 times. Okay, fine. Some people have a problem that's worse than others. But many of these people, given the right opportunity, could solve these problems. They, they could get themselves back on their feet. But it takes a medical approach, not a judicial approach. And again, what I'm saying, and I believe is the case, locking up drug users and people that buy a little bit and sell it to their friends, no matter what your stance on drugs, locking those people up, nobody wins. And there are more drugs in our country today than there were 10 years ago. And 10 years ago, there was more than there was 10 years prior to that. And the war on drugs and dare and just say no and all of this shit going all the way back to the 60s, 70s, and 80s 
has done nothing to abate the problem at all. It's made it worse. And here's what nobody can seem to understand, basic economics. As long as this shit is illegal, there is an ass load of money in it, and all of the evil things you'll say, but what about guns and violence and shooting children and gangs? And If it wasn't illegal, none of that shit could exist. If you legalize drugs tomorrow, you would break the back of organized crime and gang violence like that because there's nothing to fund it anymore. What do you think would fund gangs without drugs? Where would they get their funding from? Robbing and stealing, that's a lot higher risk, isn't it? That's a, you know, and then we'd, if we'd have plenty of room to put those people too, wouldn't we? Those crimes have victims. It has always been the case that the illegal substance market has been a number one way for nefarious people to fund their activities. You remove that ability. And instead of lethal injection, if somebody insists on doing heroin, they can get a known quantity of heroin that's clean, that hasn't been cut with chlorine bleach or something like that. From a friggin' Walgreens. For a penny or two. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think that's a terrible thing. That people would be running around using heroin if they bought at Walgreens. But let me tell you something. I think what we have right now is a lot worse. Because we wouldn't have 18-year-old girls dying in the custody of the state because they were basically denied intravenous water. That's what this girl needed to prevent her from dehydrating. That would have saved her life. And here's the biggest tragedy in this. When the state of Pennsylvania says all procedures and protocols were followed, I believe them. And therefore, it is not only the people that were in the immediate care of this person who I think are responsible for her death, but the state itself as an entity. And I do hope these parents either won their lawsuit or eventually win their lawsuit. But I have my doubts, because the state's pretty big on protecting itself. That's what states do. I don't know why I tried to tackle two really big, hard things today uh, that are kind of out of my wheelhouse, honestly, because I don't really know much about heroin. Um, but this one's from Jason, and Jay, this is another huge problem. He says, what are your thoughts on homelessness, and can, should anything be done? Perhaps you can take your basic needs of survival and apply them to the community at large. I drive by dozens of people standing on corners holding signs begging for handouts every day to work and back. Half of them claiming to be vets. I also pass a shelter where the line to get in wraps around the building in the evening. I have some contempt for the homeless for all of the typical mundane reasons. But I think a portion of my contempt comes from ignorance. I have spoken to some who are involved in helping the homeless and haven't found anything yet that strikes me as even a partial solution to a massive complex problem, a problem that relates to survival as a community. Thanks. Love the show. Jason in Minnesota. Um, I, I would be lying if I told you I have a solution to this problem. But I think you have to understand that it's not a problem. It's a whole bunch of problems. First of all, a huge piece of the problem is the problem we just talked about, drugs. Um, a lot of the homeless that, instead of just maybe getting a cot for a night at a, you know, a, a shelter, there are programs that many of them can't get into because they have to stay off drugs to get into them, where they help you get like, you know, a, a transitional house and things like that. There's not enough of those programs to help everybody, but I mean, from talking to, to some law enforcement officers here locally that try to help people get into things like that when they see them on the street all the time. Um, 
many of them, that's why they won't go. Another reason some of them won't go to shelters or other places that will help them, they won't take animals with them. And some of these people have adopted, you know, a dog or something like that on the street, and, and they love that animal's the one thing they have, and they're not going to give it up. And I think that, like, if we're going to fix that problem, then we need to make the solutions accommodating to that. Because how can you expect a person that's maybe lived on a street for five years, that's been running around with this dog that they've shared the little food they can get with with for two years, and that dog's been the only the only thing that's never turned their back on them and say, well, you have to just leave the dog in the street. It's ridiculous. I wouldn't do it if I were that situation. One of the things that really kind of changed my opinion to some degree on the issue with homelessness and like what it must really be like to, to be in that situation was a movie that I watched uh, based on the book Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. And I won't go through the whole concept of what the book's about or the, the movie's about or what have you, but the, the way the movie starts is this guy basically just has, I guess what you would call a midlife crisis. And he decides that he can't live in his home anymore. So he had a house and a wife and I think kids, and he abandoned them. But he didn't abandon them and run off to a new town and get a new job and, and just like leave them. He clearly had something deeply wrong in his mind and his heart because he packs up a tent and a backpack and he basically just heads off and finds basically like kind of a homeless tent city. And because uh, he doesn't know where to go. He takes almost no money with him. So even though he abandoned his family, whatever they did have, they he left it for them. He left he didn't he didn't you know he didn't cash in his bear bonds or something like that. He just left with the clothes on his back, a tent and a pack with a few items. Well, he finds this group of homeless people living in tents and ramshackle shacks and stuff like that and kind of settles in with them. And the ones cooking some food asks him if he wants some and he's like, well, Yeah, where'd you get it? And he says basically he dug it out of the garbage. And he refuses to eat it. You know, they all kind of look at my oh, a new guy, right? Like, and this one guy tells them, like, it'll be two weeks or less. And you'll be climbing in and getting whatever you can find. And it's about two weeks into it. He's hungry. He's really hungry. He can't figure out what to do. He sees this dumpster. He climbs in it. And he finds, like, a half-eaten sandwich in a plastic thing. So, I mean, if you're going to eat something out of the garbage, it's probably about as good as you were going to do. And he sits down on a, like a corner right where the garbage can is, like up against the wall of this dingy-looking building. And he just starts just shoving it in his face, and he's eating it like he hasn't had a meal in weeks, which he probably hasn't. And while he's eating it, he's bawling, crying. Not because he's eating food out of the garbage, but because he's fallen so far so fast that he's willing to eat food out of the garbage. And you wonder if, because there are people that are scam artists, right? There are people that, I just saw a thing recently where a guy was busted by the police panhandling and he had hundreds of dollars and, and, and drug paraphernalia on him. So, I mean, there is that. I, I remember one time, it was right around Christmas, 
I'm on, I was going to pick some, uh, some uh, bottles of wine and some other uh, alcohol up at the local liquor store because we had family coming for like a big party and stuff like that. I want to have mixed drinks and all. And as I'm making this U-turn that you had to make like a roundabout to get back to where the liquor store is on the other side of the highway, I see this guy, homeless guy with a sign and a dog. And he's there where the light is, and I don't quite catch the light, so I, 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 I go right past him. And because of the dog and because it was cold, there was this piece of me thinking, throw him five bucks, throw him a dollar, whatever. See what you got. But because it didn't, the traffic flow didn't stop, I just blow by him. So I get in, and this is like, you know, right before the holidays. So, like, it's when they hire a cop to be at the liquor store, you know, just for safety because there's so many people there, long lines and stuff. And I, I don't really know what I want, so I'm going up and down, picking out different bottles of wine. So I'm there a while, and then I realize when I finally get in this huge line, the guy in front of me in the line is the guy minus the dog that I just saw underneath the overpass a few minutes earlier. So when I get up to the counter and he leaves, I tell the girl, hey, that guy was just outside with his dog begging for money under the overpass. She said, oh, yeah, he's a regular. He comes in here every day. Okay, so, and he wasn't exactly picking up a 40, right? So that jades me. Now, here's the other side of that. You give somebody money, what they do with it is their business or don't give it to them. And I go work for my money and I come home and I might buy beer with it. That's my business. You might not approve of it, but you don't pay my bills. And then you can't tell me that every single person that's out there begging for money is making over 100000 a year as a panhandler. There would be a lot more of them. And that all of them are just blowing the money on drugs and booze because they got to eat something. So, I mean, I really don't know. I really don't know. I do think some of the solutions would be making it easier for people to make short-term transient housing, small houses, that type of thing. That Those types of, you know, I've watched documentaries on like where they've set up these little villages and stuff like that, and they're actually pretty well run. Generally, they're pretty drug-free, and, and they're people that are the legitimate homeless. They just don't have a place to go, and they're trying to figure out what to do. But here's the other side of that. Do you want one across the street from you? Because everybody seems to think, well, that's a fine idea and those people should be left alone until it's your next-door neighbor that gives up their land and says, I'm making this available. The one I watched, I think it was in Tennessee, and they got kicked out of this place. It was like where there was like a, a creek and a bridge, and it was like abandoned land that they had set this up in, and the city eventually kicks them out. And it was, it was really terrible because it was like a perfect location. It was well-run. And some guy that was outside of city limits had like 30 acres. And he said, you guys can have five acres of my land as long as you need it. Go ahead and set up. Well, all of the people that lived in that area through a fit went to the town council and said, hey, we don't want this here. So it's it, it's one of those things, and you, you go, well, that's bullshit. But again, what if it was your house that was across the street, and all of a sudden there's going to be 50 homeless people living in a shanty town on the other side of the street from you? You don't want that, right? And even if they're good people, you know some of them aren't. And you know all of a sudden when anything goes wrong, everybody's going to say it's their fault, whether it is or not. So I, I don't... 
exactly know what the solution to this problem is. Now, I mean, the status would say, well, we should just outlaw it. Well, that doesn't give them a house, does it? And a lot of people say, well, there's always a way. There is, but sometimes, just like, see, when we talked about the drug problem, sometimes people lose the ability to see the way anymore. And I just don't think we have enough systems in place to support this type of stuff. And while I'm not a fan of the state, I would say the state steals an awful lot of money. To, you know, to the tune of about a trillion and a half dollars a year or something like that from, that's just income tax, by the way. Okay. So, um, when you look at all the money the state steals at various levels, the county, the city, the state, the big state, the little state, in all the different ways they steal money. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like three trillion a year or something like that, just at the federal level. Probably the, all the little governments put together probably steal at least combined another trillion bucks. And there's a lot of shit we're spending money on that we don't need to be spending money on. And we send a lot of money to countries all over the world to help their people. And it just seems to me like if we're going to have all that money stolen, then we could be doing something to, to deal with this problem at a higher level. But again, you're going to have to understand it's not just about providing a place for people to live. It's bigger than It's not just about providing food for them to eat, a place for them to live. Though that would be a nice start. Many of these people are severely mentally ill. That's why they're in these situations in the first place. And it's not an easy one to handle. It really isn't. And it's, I, I, I don't know what the solution is. Though I do think the solution has to be making housing more affordable. Because no matter what you do to get people up off the ground and into a place to live, from a box to a, some sort of a, a legitimate dwelling... The more expensive that entry-level dwelling is, the harder that job is. And I think one of the things we have to understand when we look at big problems like heroin addiction, homelessness, what everybody wants is like the thing that will be like the sitcom on TV. At the end, everybody hugs and everybody's happy and everything works. And that's just not reality. The, the question is, how can we make it better than it is? Because right now it's not very good. So that, that's the best I can do at handling two big issues like that on a Monday, guys. I'm, I'm sorry I can't do better. I, I do recommend the book uh, Conversations with God uh, by Neil Donald Walsh. And there's actually multiple books, but uh, it, it's it's something that is very eye-opening. Um, and, he, you know, the the concepts of what it's like to be in that situation and how it leads you to discover yourself, to me anyway, were very valuable Uh, again, there's a movie that I think maybe for many is better than the book just because it's more of just the story than all of the philosophy behind what Neil eventually comes to with his work that becomes the books. It's more the story of how the books came to be, I guess, and that's why I think it would be valuable. If you want to better understand homelessness, I think they do a pretty good and pretty accurate portrayal. I wish I could remember the documentary about the people living in the in the city in uh, Tennessee. It's on Netflix, I'm sure of that, but I can't remember what it's called. If anybody knows about what the name of that might be, let me know and I'll uh, put it out because I think it's uh, – It's a very, that one's extremely factual and helps you understand what this issue really is all about. All right, we're going to finish up with a story on cryptocurrency, specifically something that probably affects Ethereum and all of the tokens created with it more so than anything else, more so than like Bitcoin or any type of altcoin that's running on like a Bitcoin-like chain. Um, 
there's a story out. I have it linked to, and you can read the whole thing if you want to. It's very long, so I'm not going to read it, but it's on Ars Technica. And it says, using blockchain doesn't exempt you from securities regulation. A $150 million Ethereum crowdfunding project broke the law, says the SEC. However, they're not going to prosecute it. And the reason they're not going to prosecute it is they hadn't issued any guidance on it at that point. So I think it would be a difficult case for them to process. Um, and this article goes like goes off into a side thread over and over about the Ethereum, uh, the hack in the DAO. And, uh, you know, it, it does seem a bit like it's designed to make cryptocurrency look a bad thing, at least to a degree. Like, to, maybe not bad, but like to cast some negative, negative glitter on top of cryptocurrency as a whole. So it seems to come from that way a little bit for me. Um, but what the SEC said, and what, what people are saying now is, well, ICOs are over. No one will be able to raise funding through the sale of initial coin offerings ever again because the SEC says, well, hold on. First of all, the SEC gets to regulate American citizens. It doesn't get to regulate, and American companies, it doesn't get to regulate the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is largely free of this belief that if you want to invest your money with a company, that you're somehow a victim. The uh, the laws, you know, regulating who can do what in other countries are much more lapsed than our own when it comes to things like that. Solicitation of capital, okay? Not completely lapsed, but way, way more lenient than ours. Ours are very, very stringent. And it costs millions of dollars to do a public offering where Joe Schmo can buy your stock. So ICOs have been a way to get around this. And you got to understand that most of the people participating in these things, these are people that are switched on to cryptocurrency. They know, maybe they're not smart, but they, they know what they're getting into and they know it's risk. So there's been this like little gray hole here where people have been running these, these ICOs. And I think a lot of it is nonsense. It's just bullshit. But this doesn't really say you can't do them. What it says you can't do is you can't do them as a security. And by reading the SEC's opinion, this is what I take away from it. The SEC says there's two things that make this the case. One is that when you when you buy the security, you're promised some sort of a return on your investment. If the even not guaranteed, but just like, well, if the company's profitable or if it works, there's some kind of a dividend that comes back to you which the Dow had, sort of. The other is that you have any type of control over the entity itself. If you're a shareholder in Exxon, you actually have some say in how Exxon does business. Now, you have almost no real say, but you sort of kind of do. Because if there's anything big that happens that goes to a shareholder vote, then and most shareholders never vote, because there's some little long pause and stuff like that, stuff's held within other entities and institutional investments, etc., don't. But technically, you, you get to vote. And, and the biggest time you get to vote is if there's a, an offer to buy out. So when I was working for Microtest, and they were bought out by Fluke Networks, and that's how I ended up there for three years, I had Microtest stock. And you got to vote. And for every share, you got one vote. Now, there was enough reserved shares that the bigwigs in the company could completely control the way that was going to go. But let's say that there wasn't, and the shareholders voted no. 
Well, then the buyout doesn't happen. So that's the other thing. So either you can get a dividend or some sort of profit returned to you, or you have voting rights. So then let's look at something like one of the things this article mentions is Brave. And one of the things they don't mention, because they probably don't know, is that when Brave sold $36 million or $35 million worth of Brave tokens in six minutes, they sold them to like six people or six entities. So all of them had millions of dollars. So all of them, by their very nature, would have been what's called an accredited investor. If you are liquid worth $2 million or more, you're accredited. And that means I can solicit you for your money. It's okay. The government says since you're rich, it's okay for you to risk your money. But if you're poor and you'd like to become rich, it's not okay for you to risk your money unless you're buying one of their lottery tickets or some safe investment like that, right? Okay, so the Brave token, let's talk about what the Brave token is supposed to do. It doesn't do anything yet. It's eventually supposed to do. The Brave token is supposed to work like this. The Brave browser, which is being built by the founder of uh, uh, Mozilla and uh, the original architect of JavaScript, and I think he had something to do with Netscape as well, is a new browser, and that browser is just slick at blocking ads. I mean, it is the fastest browsing experience I've ever had. I love the Brave browser. I've been using it. And it only blocks, like, served ads. So, like, if you put, if you use the Brave browser, you go to the Survival Podcast, you see my ads because they're just images with a link. So, like, the small-time publisher doesn't hurt you. It's all these massive ad networks where when you go to the Weather Channel, it takes like 45 seconds for the friggin' page to load so you can see the map to see if you're going to die from a tornado or not because it's much more important that a dancing clown try to sell you a mortgage, right? So it blocks all that shit. It speeds everything up. But then there's an option. You say, I am willing to see advertisements from people on the Brave Network, which will be vetted advertisers. You know, they won't be these scams. They won't be these... Pages with 500 links that are just more and more ads and half-naked people and stuff like that. There'll be legitimate products. And, of course, over time, it'll become tailored to your interests because that makes the advertising more valuable. And if you do that, what they're saying in time is, as they build their ad network out, you'll get some money. Maybe not a lot, but a little bit. Maybe five bucks a week. Because you're the one generating the value. Without you, they don't have anything to sell. Okay, And you'll get paid in a Brave token. That's how you get paid. And an advertiser will have to buy advertising using the Brave token. So the utility is it is, it is, a, it is a currency that works inside that network. And the other thing that you will be able to do is say, well, you know what? There's these 10 websites that I find to be the most valuable websites I use. Hopefully one of them is Survival Podcast. And I'd like to give all of them a dollar a month in Brave Tokens, or one Brave Token, or a half a Brave Token, depending on you know, how much it becomes worth. And you can set in your browser settings that these sites get a little piece of my revenue, whether it's Brave Tokens you bought or Brave Tokens you're simply receiving. So if you receive like five Brave Tokens a month as a, as a, as a, a, a web surfer, basically, and you don't really want them, you, you want to pass the value back on, you can just say, give all the stuff I earn to these sites that I find valuable. It's an ecosystem. Pretty slick. Will it work? I don't know. I brought about a th I bought about a thousand brave tokens because they were cheap. If they go appreciate in value, great. If they don't, it's not that much money, right? If nothing else, I can play around with them on Brave as I develop the, the platform. But does it under the SEC's new rules 
qualify as a security? And the answer is no. And it's not even new rules. They're saying that under the existing rules, something like the Dow or something like anything that offers to return a dividend or gives owners of in them shares is a security. That's what their existing rules say. And now they're just saying, hey, look, over here, see this? You have to abide by this. Now this, this gets interesting. Because, well, how does that affect something like Dash? I don't think that it does. But it, de it definitely doesn't affect Brave. Because by having Brave tokens, do I have any rights to vote in how the company runs? No. And if the company makes a million dollars this month, do I get anything? No. So it's actually a worse deal for me, right? Because I don't get any say. I don't get any share of the profits. But unless they come out with further guidance that says otherwise, it's completely okay for me to buy those tokens on the ICO. Now, the other way that I read this is there's nothing that will prevent these, these, these securities, if you want to call them that, from being sold on things like Bittrex and Kraken and stuff like that after the ICO on the open exchanges. That's still completely unregulated. It's only when the company comes out and it issues these things and returns for funds going into the company. And this is where you start to realize it ain't about protecting you. It's about collecting as much tax as they can. Because here's the ring on this. I would say that under the Dow's model, where they said, put the money in, it goes into the company, gets held in reserve, and you basically have opinion, and you get money back, that's fundraising. And you became a co-owner, just like stock. So that company can turn around and say, yes, we raised $130 million, $150 million, and we owe zero tax on it. Because that's how these giant corporations make so much dadgone money with an IPO. You see, like when Facebook did its IPO and they raised billions of dollars, they didn't pay a single penny of tax on that IPO. Did you know that? And technically they shouldn't. Because the money's not for them to keep and, and piss away. It's for them to operate and run the company with to return value back to the shareholders. And if you're a shareholder, you're a co-owner. So if five of us get together and we all put $10,000 into a company and we deposit it, and we sign a shareholders agreement, and $50,000 go into the company, the company doesn't pay tax on that, and it doesn't with an IPO either. But by my understanding of tax law, when Brave sold $36 million, $35 million, whatever it is of Brave tokens, that was income. That was income. And therefore it has to be taxed as income. Same problems we ran into trying... This is the, and the reason I see this so clearly, exact same pattern... This is when I was trying to do Perma Ethos 1.0 and create a system that gave back to the members. And the guy from the FTC said they'll put you in federal prison. Notice they were going to put me in federal prison, but when you have this kind of money going on, eh, you didn't know, so we'll let it go, but don't do it again. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting, isn't it? So, what is the solution? Well, I think there's a variety of solutions. I think one solution, we're back to our old friend, the virtual nation. If I were a company that wanted to do an ICO and give a return back to my shareholders, I would simply say we are operating with no U.S. citizens. U.S. citizens are not allowed to participate 
in our ICO. But we don't know who any of our participants are. And then, I mean, all you need to do, and it's already the case, there's already ICOs out there. They say you can't buy if you're a U.S. citizen, but they don't want your name, your address, none of that shit. All you need is a VPN with it, with any IP address that's off. It's not a U.S. IP, and you can you can do it. So virtual nations could actually create portals for this. And we, we don't do business with U.S. citizens. In fact, we don't do business with anybody's citizens. We do business with BitNation or Libertas.gov or whatever, right? And who are they? We don't know. By our privacy agreement with, with them, we're not allowed to tell you. This works fine except for what? U.S.-based companies. And where's the best place to build a company in the world right now? Right here. If it's going to do something. If it's going to be all electronic-based and all, yeah, there's, there's real cases to be made for locating your company elsewhere. But if you're going to actually have a building and people and employees and do shit, there is not a better country to do business in the United States. So the problem for them is they're going to do this thing and the government's going to shut them down for it. So there's a lot now starting to be clamped down on this side of cryptocurrency. And this is why I've been saying from the beginning, what really matters is what is the utility of the token? What does it do? That we that, that it can do better than dollar bills. What does it do? And cryptocurrency was never meant to become what people are trying to turn it into. It was designed to be an alternative to the systems that they're now trying to mimic with these ICOs. They're basically turning into a fundraising, fundraising mechanism. And I think a lot of these companies are just ripping people off because they're never going to be successful. But people are feel, should feel free to be ripped off if they want to be ripped off, in my opinion. There will be workarounds for this, but it is a it is going to put an end to this every other day. There's another ICO. To a degree. I think it's still going to continue. I, I think a lot of people are going to be like, screw it, you can't do anything about it. And in some ways they can't, but sooner or later they're going to make an example of somebody. And we've got to be careful that we don't become one of those if we're playing this game. With that wrapped up, let me remind you, if you like this show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can support us is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. You go to tspaz.com whenever you're going to shop online, and any of the shopping that you do there will help support the Survival Podcast. And that now includes folks, uh, those of you that listen to us from the United Kingdom and Canada. You can participate in helping us out through tspaz as well. And when you go to tspaz, you'll see my, you know, my products that I review, my daily product reviews on Amazon, and you can shop the Amazon deals of the day and all that stuff, and as long as you shop through T-Spaz, you do help support the show. Um, and then today I actually have a pretty cool product. I'm bringing it back from last year. It uh, did really well last year for us. It is called the E-Tech City Laser Grip Digital Laser Temperature Gun. And, and what this thing is, it's a little basically thermometer. You hold it in your hand. You point it at something, you shoot a little red laser beam at it. A little red laser beam touches and instantly tells you what the temperature is. And I have found this thing to be incredibly accurate. One of the things I was really shocked about was when I put my aquariums in my office and I looked at the, you know, the, the aquarium thermometer and, you know, it's like 78 degrees. And I'm like, okay, well, let's see how accurate this is. And I shot the water with it, 78 degrees, spot on. And there's a lot of things that you can do with it. Um, let's say you're cooking something and, it, and the instructions say saute at 220 degrees for your pan temperature. Do you, do you have a pan that says, you know, set to 220 degrees? Well, with this, you basically do. 
you, you turn the pan on, and as you bring it slowly up the temperature, you shoot it, and you can get exactly where you want to be. So you can find, like, the sweet spot for sautéing and frying and things like that when you're pan frying. Um, what if you wanted to know how much cooler the temperatures really were under that shade cloth you put in for your nursery? Not just the air temperature, but, like, the ground temperature where your chickens are running around in there. Boop, shot. You know what the temperature is. What about finding hot and cold areas around your house to find losses so you can shore up your energy losses? You know, I mean, the, the best way to improve your, your energy dependency is to improve your efficiency, not to put solar panels on your house. So finding things like that. Um, you want to know how well your AC is working. Doesn't seem like it's doing what it should. You know, go shoot the intake where the air goes in, shoot the out output where it comes out, And the difference is how much the air is being cooled in your house by your air conditioner. Um, if you got a, a cylinder missing in, in, a, in a, um, an engine, shoot each cylinder. The cooler one is the one that's missing. It's not firing. I mean, there's just so much you can do with these. They're, they're really uh, just a great tool, and they're like 17 bucks. 17 bucks. I have used mine for so many things. Um, checking temperatures of, of different environments, finding microclimates. Like when I'm trying, I want to find a place to plant this particular plant that's really in an area where we're a little bit too hot for it. So you go around, you can find the place, gets some good sun, but yet is a little bit cooler, and just take temperatures four or five times a day over a couple of days, and then find a couple different cool spots to tuck it into, or find a spot that stays warmer. And not just as warmer when the sun's beating on it, but Does that spot with that rock background really stay, war stay warmer overnight than the surrounding area? Go take its temperature at midnight, and you'll know. It's just a cool tool. And again, you can find it at tspaz.com. And whenever you do your online shopping at tspaz.com, as long as you're in the United States, the UK, or Canada, you help support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do right here. With that, uh, let's talk about our song of the day today. I... Uh, Did not get an updated list from John Adams, so I had to go out on my own and pick a song. And I realized that, you know, except for that Jimmy Buffett song that I, I played as a uh, an audible last week, I hadn't played any Jimmy Buffett for you guys in a long time. And one of the things I've been surprised by, I don't really surprised by, pleasantly surprised by, I guess, is the number of people I've heard from in my playing of Jimmy Buffett songs that have been like, I did not know that song existed. And I didn't know Jimmy Buffett was that kind of a deep musician. I think this is another one of those songs, and I don't think I've ever played it for you guys before. This is a song called Change in Channels. Now, this isn't like changing the channel on your TV set. You know, Jimmy Buffett, Islands, Nautical, right? So changing channels kind of is the way to think about it with your, your boat, waiting for your sails to fill. And this song is about the timelessness of island life, but I think also the restlessness for some of those in that life. That some people stay and some people go. That, but when you go, like, the islands are kind of always the same. History always gets repeated is one of the lines in the song. Um, and how there is that kind of timelessness, that completely different view that people that live the island life seem to live. I mean, one of my favorite stanzas in this song is, there's an island in the ocean where the people stay in motion somewhere on the old Gulf, on the old Gulf Stream. Do they live or did I dream? 
almost can't believe that life's really like that for some people all the time. And yet there is people that can't stay put. They're waiting for their sails to fill and move on to the next place. And it also harkens certainly back to the original slave trade and the people that are there. Um, children of former slaves is one of the lines in the song. The first couple stanzas. Girl of a thousand faces from a long line of basket cases. Daughter of a fortune teller. Oh, the lovely Isabella. She's changing sta channels, staying on her toes. She's just changing channels as she goes. This place is full of beachhead sailors, fishermen, and old retailers. Simple lives are so deep-seated, and history always gets repeated. Some folks see a bird's-eye view. Others haven't got a clue. Some will go, and some will stay. It doesn't matter anyway. This is a great song, and it's a beautiful song. I hope you enjoy it. And I hope, you know, it ends the show on a little bit of an upbeat note, considering we took on some pretty heavy issues today that we don't really have answers for yet. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
did I dream they were changing channels Waiting for the sails to fill They'll be changing channels Always will They'll be changing channels Waiting for the sails to fill They'll be changing 